Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I'm excited to announce some upcoming webinars that I'll be conducting. There will be two three-part webinars, the first of which is intended for former cult members or people who were in relationships with controllers or narcissists who are looking for deeper insight into their healing process. The second series is for the families and friends of those who have been in those kinds of environments and want to understand how to help support their loved ones and also how they can cope with these difficult moments and stresses placed on these relationships with their loved ones. The first of the three-part series for former members will premiere Thursday, September 8th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. At the same time of day, the following two Thursdays as well, the 15th and the 22nd. The second webinar intended for families and friends will premiere Thursday, October 6th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And at the same time of day, the following two Thursdays. October 13th and October 20th. These first rounds of webinars are going to be premiered live, so you'll be able to ask questions in the chat that I will then answer at the end during the Q&A session. The individual cost for these three-part webinars is $150. US The bundle price for both webinars is $250. US If you're unable to attend live, the webinars will be available for purchase through my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com or on our Vimeo page, where you can download or stream them anytime. You can find the link in the show notes of this episode. Each meeting will be one hour long, a 45-minute presentation with 15-minute Q&A. I truly look forward to speaking with all of you in a new and more intimate way. Stay tuned for more similar offerings as we are planning to launch many, many more video lectures on various subjects, all of which will be available for download and streaming anytime. You can find more information on my website. Thank you and be well. Today we have a special guest, someone who I was able to meet in person, have a lovely lunch with, and and then also uh, been able to speak with her since then, and I hope to be able to see her again soon. She's a very interesting person, very kind person, and smart, and I'm happy to know her. Rachel Manija Brown has an interesting story. She also has an interesting book that she's going to talk about with one of the greatest names, All the Fishes Come Home to Roost. Rachel Brown's parents moved her to an ashram in India when she was seven years old to worship the guru Meher Baba. Rachel stayed there until she was 12, but never considered herself a follower of him. She wrote a memoir about the experience, All the Fishes Come Home to Roost. Her mother still lives at the ashram. Rachel has an MA in clinical psychology, has worked as a trauma therapist, and currently works as a life coach. Her website is at rachelmbrown.com. She writes professionally under her own name as Leah Silver and as one of the group of writers who share the pen name Zoe Chant. Check out her writings. Here is Rachel now. so happy to have a fellow Rachel on the show, someone who I've had the pleasure of meeting and dining with and who has also written a fantastic book 
and who has a very interesting life story and is also doing some really wonderful work presently, which I want to be able to talk to her more about. So Rachel, take it away, introduce yourself, say a little bit about who you are and also kind of what brings you to the show. Yeah. So uh, my name is Rachel Manija Brown. And my middle name is because I was named after the sister of my parents' guru. Um, And I originally was named Manija Mahara Brown, which meant that I was named after the guru's sister and also his consort. And I later changed my name to have a name that I wanted. So as you can guess from that, uh, the reason that I'm on your show is that my parents belonged to a cult or group or spiritual path or whatever you call it, depending on your perspective, which I was raised in. Um, And I actually spent my childhood from ages 7 to 12 in an ashram in a odd little town in India, uh, which was an absolutely miserable experience for me in every possible way. I actually more or less had to extract myself at the age of 12, which was not easy. And I have never considered myself a follower of the group, but it has been a big influence on my life. And I, after I left, I grew up and became a writer and I did a lot of therapy myself as a client and year, which was incredibly helpful. And years and years later, I became a therapist myself. And I worked as a trauma therapist for uh, about six or seven years in Los Angeles. And I'm currently post-pandemic working over Zoom as a life coach, where I can do some things that are not really considered part of therapy and are more practical. But life, the line between life coach and therapist is a little blurry. So I do still do a lot of work on trauma. And the reason that I met you, Rachel Bernstein, is that a mutual friend also named Rachel was someone who I met first. And she immediately said, uh, do you know my friend, Rachel, who has a podcast on cults? And I was actually kind of surprised that I hadn't heard of the podcast on cults because I love reading about cults. It's kind of of something that fascinates me for obvious reasons. And so I immediately went and listened to some episodes and I then called up my Rachel and said, the three Rachels have to meet. (laughs) And we did. And we had a Rachel lunch and it was wonderful. And so shout out to our mutual friend, Rachel, who's been a great listener and supporter of the show. I'm curious, just in terms of the chronology, your parents found out about this group, how and what was the appeal for them? Well, what was the appeal for them, honestly, is something that people always ask me. And it's something that I have wondered about since day one. And I still kind of don't really understand. I was born in 1973. So before I was born in, I believe, 1968 or 69 or so, my mother was seeing a psychiatrist. She was a student at Berkeley at the time, I believe. And her psychiatrist recommended that she go to a group on the Guru Meher Baba, which now that I am a uh, have been a therapist myself, I consider to be such a wildly inappropriate suggestion, but no followers of Meher Baba consider that inappropriate. So she went to this group, which was a group of followers of Meher Baba, the guru. And 
they showed her, I, I think this happened at the first meeting. I, I don't remember the details perfectly, but I believe they showed a black and white silent movie of Meher Baba. And she took one look at it and decided that he was God. At that point, I think that she introduced my father to the group and he had essentially the same reaction. Now, I've seen black and white movies and also color movies and many movies, so many movies of Meher Baba, the guru. And that is not the reaction that I have to them at all. So I kind of don't really get it on some fundamental level. Wow. So when you see those movies now, and then we'll go back to sort of building on the story that you that you started. When you see them, what is your response? And I'm sure it's hard to have an objective response, but still, what's the feeling you get or the impression you get? The impression I get when I see them now is to be pissed off that this one guy who believed he was God was responsible for so much misery and unhappiness and suffering in my life. I look at him and I'm just like, he's just some dude who thought he was God and kind of inexplicably got a lot of people to believe him. Now, when I looked at those movies when I was a kid, which I had to watch a bunch of them because we watched them at the ashram all the freaking time, I would sit there and just think, what makes all these people think that this guy is God? I don't get it. He's just a guy. He's a middle-aged Indian dude like a million middle-aged Indian dudes that I see on the street all the time because I was living in India. So most middle-aged dudes I saw were Indian. And I just did not get it. And to this day, I don't get it. Right. You don't know what it is that is appealing to certain people. It is inexplicable. I mean, it's a perfect word for it because you know, I'm sure you've had that with people where they're dating someone and they just think they're the cat's meow, to use a 1950s phrase. Uh, <laughs> but I find it so interesting because a lot of people will say, him or her? What? What? I just don't, I don't see it. But for whatever reason, your mom felt something and believed him. Yeah. And she never met him in person. He actually died. Neither of them did. He died in 1969. So none of us ever met him in person. And it's actually a little odder to me, given that it was just a recording, because I've, of course, experienced that intense draw toward a human being that you meet, whether it's sexual and romantic or whether it's a friendship. So that part I get, I don't get it so much through video, although I have had crushes on movie stars who I've only seen in video, but it's not to the intense degree that it would make me uproot my life and move to another continent to follow someone I've only ever seen through a medium. Right. So I do think that it happens sometimes that when people see someone in person, they see the kind of the humanity in them and the, the faults at times that you don't see when something is on the screen or well-rehearsed and well-practiced. And yeah, there is the star power of it that can be very blinding. So then they moved to India. Yes. So I was seven years old at that time and they moved to Ahmednagar, which is a smallish town. It's kind of, it's two hours away from Pune, which is a larger town and a much, much nicer town. 
And it's nine hours by train away from Mumbai. So hopefully you're getting a sense of exactly how remote this is. So small town, the only things that were really significant about it uh, geopolitically is it did have an army base, which ended up becoming kind of significant to me, but wasn't at the time that I lived there. And Meher Baba, the guru who said he was God, had chosen it as his home base and he had an ashram there. A little background on Meher Baba. Uh, He was born in, I think, the 1890s. And as a child, he had two experiences, which I used to know this stuff by heart, but I'm now 48 and I've kind of forgotten the exact chronology. So uh, this may be slightly garbled. But basically, when he was a teenager, he got obsessed with a holy person in the neighborhood who was just considered sort of a wandering saint, which India has kind of a lot of. And she threw a rock at him and hit him over the head. And he then went home and started banging his own head against rocks in the house. And to this day, the bloodstained rock that he banged his head against is preserved as a holy object and people go and bow down to it in in a spiritual way. I know this sounds so weird. Uh, One of the things that I'm always wrestling with is when I tell these stories to people, their reaction is always, this is bizarre, which is kind of my reaction that I had as a kid. But when I was living there, nobody considered any of this weird in the slightest. They considered it extremely holy and spiritual and wonderful because the moment when he got hit over the head with a rock was when he attained enlightenment and realized that he was God. Then he went into a coma, I think, or a sort of catatonic state for several months. And then somebody else threw a rock at him, a different holy person. Again, I may be garbling this slightly. I just remember there were two there were two big head injuries caused by people throwing rocks at him. And then he declared that he was God. And he started a cult and many convinced his own family that he was God and accrued a bunch of followers and basically ordered their lives like he told people who they could marry and who they could not marry. He made a million predictions, none of which ever came true. But every time a prediction didn't come true, he would tell his followers, ah, I made that prediction deliberately as a fake prediction to sift out the people who cared about stupid stuff like prophecies because who wants them? And I made the fake prediction. So those people would all go away. And the only people who would stick by me are the people who truly love me for my own self, you. And then they'd say, oh, yes, Baba. Yes, Baba. Of course, these false prophecies are wonderful. And we don't care that the prophecies were fake. We just love you. And what a wonderful, godly thing that you for you to do. The other thing is he kept a vow of silence for most of his life and only communicated through an alphabet board or later through a system of sign language that he made up himself. And the rationale for this was that a bunch of gods and prophets and saints in the past had told people great wisdom and none of them listened. So now he was going to be silent and not say anything. But of course, he did say a million things. He just said them with an alphabet board and through gestures. And also he wrote several books. Yes. When you say these things, 
they do sound crazy. You don't sound crazy. It sounds crazy. And it is also something where people say, how could that have been believed? And when you're not there and you don't see for some people the mystique and you don't see the the need to belong and the need to please this person who you see as a godlike figure and go along with what they say, then it you know becomes hard to understand why people would believe this. The whole being hit with a rock thing. I mean, how often is that going to happen in your lifetime? So the fact that, you know, that's happened over and over says to me that it's not a real story, but also it kind of makes me wonder about brain damage. I actually personally think the hit with the rock stories were true just because I was living in India at the time. And um, I also had multiple encounters with people throwing rocks at me. So that seems pretty cool. Oh, I did yeah. not know it was so commonplace. Okay. Uh, well, I don't think it's commonplace, but I think under certain circumstances, it uh-huh. definitely happened. Wow. But then he went home and like beat his own head against a rock until it bled over a period of months. And yeah, it's it's not good to be inflicting uh, a lot of head injuries on yourself. There have been some studies about uh, something called temporal lobe epilepsy. Uh, and so I just wonder also about if this is part of what he was suffering from, where you can have religious fervor suddenly and go on and on and on about your prophecies. But at the same time, it sounds like he was very clever at covering his tush, for lack of a better guru word, because he could say, oh, well, that was fake on purpose. Um, there are some people who would say, oh, come on. But in that situation, it seems like it almost gave people some relief that, you know, it was okay for them to not believe it. The thing is, they actually did believe it, every single one. And then when he told them it was a fake one, then he gave them relief from the cognitive distortion of thinking, well, he's God and omnipotent, but he said something that isn't true because he said, I said it wasn't true on purpose, which kind of brings me into one of the biggest problems that I had with the ashram and life on the ashram and something that caused me a lot of misery, which is that the entire thing of Baba and the ashram was that good or bad does not reside in what you do or what you say. It doesn't reside in your actions in any way. It resides in who you are. So Baba was God. So therefore, anything Baba did was inherently good, even if it was something that If an ordinary person had done it, you might say that was wrong or cruel. He, of course, was dead at that point, but his disciples, uh, a number of them were still alive, and they were the ones running the ashram, and they were all elderly at that point. And there were some sort of whole other holy figures wandering around who I'll get into. And all of them, anything they did was inherently right because of who they were as opposed to whether it was kind or cruel or crazy, if it was done by anyone else. And so a lot of stuff happened to me that was really awful, but I was always told that it wasn't actually awful. It was actually good because of either who did it or the circumstances under which it was happening. Okay. I certainly want you to be able to explain what you mean by that. And I guess what I'm wanting first is to kind of have a visual, if we can, about where you were living, what it was like, just sort of setting the environment where these things happened that you're going to tell us about. So what were the conditions like? 
so it was this little town in India. It was drought stricken and dusty. Um, it had cars, but also uh, carriages driven by horses and oxen. And we were living in this place called the compound, which was a sort of horseshoe shaped set of little buildings, um, little homes. And me and my mom and dad lived in this one room, which uh, had stone floors and a very high ceiling. And there were three beds. So we were all living in this room with three beds and there was a kitchen, which we couldn't cook in because there were uh, servants who cooked the meals for everyone. And there were bathrooms, which like toilets, which were not a part of the, they were not attached to the rooms. They were like a separate building and they were pretty gross. And if you had to go to the bathroom at night, you had to get up with a flashlight and walk across this like gravel area where there were like really large rats, which you could see their eyes shining in the flashlight and then go to the toilets, which I forget if they even had electricity or not. Um, and then walk back and the bathrooms were also, you had to walk to them, like the bathing rooms, which are separate from the toilets. They're made of stone and they were not heated and the water was not heated. So it was a stone, it was like the stone cell and you could get, uh, hot water that you would mix with the cold water in a little tin cup and dump it over your head. So coming from the U.S. where we had stuff like showers and flush toilets that were attached to the rooms, as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, I did not appreciate the living conditions at all. I didn't like the food. Basically, there were like seven meals that the cook knew how to cook. So we just get them in rotation for seven years. Like uh, rice and dal, which is, you know, the sort of lentil curry was served like something like two or three times a week for seven years. It was extremely hot in the summers. It went up to uh, about like 115 degrees commonly. And um, we didn't have air conditioning, of course. Also, this was actually the worst thing for me personally. There was only one school which was a Catholic school. Oh, by the way, I'm actually Jewish, I should mention. Like by birth, my parents are both Jewish. But the school was a Catholic school run by sadistic nuns called uh, Sacred Heart Convent High School. And to get in, you had to walk through this gate with a giant image of a anatomically correct heart being stabbed by thorns. And there was blood dripping down like a horror movie. And that was very representative of what it felt like to attend the school, which was completely abusive. Like the nuns would actually beat people. One boy I watched getting beaten badly enough that he went to the hospital. And I also, like way, way later, I found out that some of the male teachers were sexually abusing some of the boys. I actually didn't encounter that one. So that was the school I went to. So I was getting indoctrinated in Catholic doctrine during the day and a very sort of nasty, harsh version of Catholic doctrine. And then in the afternoons and weekends, I was getting indoctrinated in the Baba way of life slash religion slash cult, which was what my parents really wanted me to believe. And that mostly consisted of bowing down to about a billion sacred objects that Baba had been involved with. Like there was his tomb where he was buried. So you had to go there and bow down at the threshold and, oh no, wait, you bowed down when you entered it. 
Then you bow down at the threshold to the tomb. Then you bow down at the slab of marble itself. And then there were all these songs and prayers to Baba that you had to stand up while you sang and recited them. And I was, you know, I was just a kid. So I'm just standing there singing this stuff extremely resentfully and bowing down to these things extremely resentfully and thinking, I don't believe in you. I don't think you're God. One day I will never have to do this again. Um, So I was the only foreign child in the ashram. I was the only foreign child in the entire town. So basically people treated me the, the way that you would expect. I should say the other kids. Like I was just a complete outcast. That's why the other kids threw rocks at me and bullied me and were mean to me in general. And by throw rocks, I mean, literally every time I went outside of the compound and an adult wasn't with me, the neighboring kids would like gather in a mob and throw rocks at me. And it was absolutely horrible. The only thing I can compare it to would be like maybe if you were uh, a child of color in a really racist, all-white American town, I'm sure that would be pretty similar. So it was wretched. In the meantime, all the Baba lovers were telling me that I was incredibly special and blessed and happy because I was the only I was the only child actually living in the ashram. And what a wonderful thing that was. I was especially blessed by Baba and things were great. And I would remember this later and I would be so glad that I had this experience, which no other child was fortunate enough to have. So it goes to something hopefully we'll cover about this sort of splitting of the self, you know, not being able to really be you, not being able to express how you feel, having what you're really feeling kind of undervalued, but really that there's no room for you even to, to express it. And I, and I think about also, and then I want to hear more about the experiences that you were alluding to, even though I know we're starting to hear about them now. You want as a child and even as an adult to have oases in your world. But it sounds like you were miserable at the ashram. You were miserable at this school. Then you were uh, attacked and had things thrown at you and ostracized when you would go out in the community. Was there a space? Was there a place for you to go where you felt safe? Was there any one you had or was there nothing? So there were two places that I liked. One was the Ashram Library, which was a single room full of books that people had brought on airplanes when they came to visit the ashram as pilgrims. And then they left them there. Uh, But there'd been a lot of pilgrims, so it was actually pretty full of books. So I used to go and read there, and I loved to read. Uh, Unfortunately, it had a librarian who was one of Baba's followers who didn't like children reading at his library. So he used to chase me out when he saw me there. And the other thing that was kind of a, uh, a space that I liked, although maybe not technically a safe space, literally, was on the weekends, we would go to the other outposts of the ashram. There were two of them. There was Marabad, which was where Baba's tomb was. And there was Marazad, which was where most of the Mandali, which were his elderly disciples lived. And in uh, Marazad in particular, there was a lot of just kind of wild land. Topographically, it was a little similar to Southern California. There were like low hills and scrub land and little valleys and a lot of bugs and lizards and snakes and so forth. And I was really interested in nature. So, and no one was really supervising me. So 
I would just go out and kind of wander around there and climb the hills and, you know, rock climb a little bit and watch lizards. And it was, it was actually kind of, it was, I have such mixed feelings about the fact that my parents let me do this because on the one hand, it was actually kind of dangerous for a nine-year-old to be doing that, not because of like strangers or anything like that, but just because you know, I was like literally climbing rock faces by myself with no safety equipment. And there were scorpions and there were cobras, which I once had a pretty close encounter with a cobra. There, So there were a lot of natural dangers. But on the other hand, it was also one of the very few things that I have positive memories of. And I do feel that a lot of American parents are very helicopter parenting I feel that there's, you know, obviously there's a lot of middle ground between let your nine-year-old rock climb with no safety equipment in a scorpion-infested wilderness and don't let your kid out the front door. But I feel that I was really happier having those dangerous experiences and getting close to nature in a way that a lot of kids don't get, despite the danger factor, than I would have been if I had been forced to just stay in the Baba Center and do nothing but listen to the Baba stories. The thing is, even today, it was an experience that I'm actually glad I had that part of it. I really like being in nature to this day. And it is something that I might not have discovered if I'd been just a suburban kid. So I'm wondering also about your relationship with your parents, for the the listeners to have a sense about your family relationships while this was all going on. Could you tell them how you were feeling, how this was impacting you. What was that whole scene like? At the time, I always had the impression that my mother was the one driving the whole Baba thing and that my dad was kind of along for the ride because my mother was extremely, extremely, extremely devout about Baba. Like she talked about Baba all the time. She spent so much time worshiping Baba and talking about Baba and going on about Baba. And my dad kind of didn't really so much. He just kind of hung around and chatted with the other guys his age at the ashram about sometimes about Baba, but just about random stuff all the time. So I kind of at the time, again, I want to be careful about saying this because I ended up feeling differently later. I thought, well, this is my mom's thing. And I really blamed her. And I thought, you know, my dad was at worst, just didn't want to leave my mom. Um, And that's why he was kind of stuck there. I later discovered that that was not really the case. But so I kind of blamed my my mom and I felt like my dad was kind of the cool one. But I was also pissed off at my dad because he was really doing nothing to protect me. And I felt like in some ways, well, if he's not that into the Baba thing, then why isn't he doing anything about it? Um, So my parents basically were, it was almost as if they had jobs and I was a latchkey kid because they were off either doing Baba stuff or in my dad's case, hanging around with his guy friends for most of the day. And then I'd see them in the evenings. And I just had enormous anger toward both my parents for keeping me in a situation where they knew I was miserable. Like I told them a couple of times that I wanted to kill myself. They knew everything that was going on, but they were just in massive denial about it, or they felt that it was worth it because of I was getting such direct exposure to Baba and Baba's disciples who I didn't really care about. Um, I didn't care about any of the Baba stuff. Um, I just felt like 
I was trapped in this completely horrible situation that they were choosing to trap me because it was something they wanted themselves. And the reason I now think that my dad was not just along for the ride is my parents are both still devout followers of Meher Baba to this day, despite the fact that they did end up getting divorced. So they're just separately devout followers. My dad's house has something like 300 separate images of Baba in it. I did count them once. Everywhere there's photos, there's a a plaster cast of Baba's feet. There's a plaster cast of Baba's hands. There's a framed photo of an x-ray of Baba's hands, which is very odd. Um, There's a bust of Baba. There's everything is Baba. There's a little marionette of Baba. The mugs, some of the mugs have Baba painted on them. Want to guess how many photos of me are in that house? Oh, don't tell me zero. Uh, Zero. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Oh, God. That is not okay. Yeah. So, um, so my dad definitely is, you know, he may have spent less time bowing down um, and talking about Baba, but he was definitely in it himself. Because if he wasn't, you know, he certainly had the opportunity to leave and he didn't. Wow. And so I wonder also then when you found out that your dad was as much of a adherent, then it did it shift your feelings about your mom? Or did you just then, you know, add your father to the list of people? It did. I mean, it's now, uh, it's now like um, 40 years later, I think I feel much more kindly toward my mom now that I know her as an adult. Um, I mean, she is still incredibly devout. She actually does still live in the ashram doing her thing. But, you know, at the time, I think, I, I think the way I feel about her now is just kind of more of an adult perspective. You know, like my parents were both into it. They both did it because they wanted to. It was not just, you know, it's not just my mother's thing and she dragged my dad along with it. Right. Okay. Okay. So I'm curious to hear more about, I know from age seven to 12, it's many years and there's a lot that took place. So what are some of the other experiences that have stayed with you that you needed to, I'm sure, work through after you left. Yes. Oh, my God. Like one thing that I was actually kind of thinking of recently, uh, actually, I was talking to my my own therapist about it recently, is the disciples of Baba, you know, who are just this sort of collection of of elderly, uh, mostly Indian people. They were kind of the equivalent of like the, the apostles of Jesus, you know. So they were all people I knew, and they were not worship themselves, but they were considered very holy because they had known Baba and they, Baba had chosen them. And um, these were people that I was told that I really loved and that they loved me so much. And to me, they were always, well, for one thing, they were a bunch of individuals. So some of them I did like, and some of them I didn't like, and, you know, they were all very different. So I didn't feel about them in a mass like they are all extremely holy, so you love all of them. And also because they were quite elderly, uh, several of them died while I was there of, of natural causes. And every time one of them died, I was told this is two things. One is, this is so sad. You loved them so much. You must be so sad. And I kind of wasn't because to me, they were all kind of in the category of like aunts and uncles you don't know that well or elderly neighbors who are kind of nice. And I just didn't have super strong feelings about any of them. 
but I kept that to myself because I knew that was so unacceptable. Um, I mean, I didn't actively say I love them. I love them, but I certainly didn't say, well, I don't really care about this person because all of like, how rude is that? You know, it's not really something you do. And so I go to these funerals and everyone expected me to be like grief stricken. And I really wasn't. I kind of never just really cared that much. And um, I ended up getting the feeling that there was something wrong with me that I didn't care when people died and what sort of person was I that I didn't experience grief that made me feel that I was like really had been deeply damaged by this whole experience and it actually wasn't until I was like something like 19 or 20 when my grandfather who was back in the America died and um him I loved and that's when I experienced grief and that was when I found out that actually there was nothing wrong with me and I absolutely experienced the same range of human feelings that everyone else did. But just you have to love someone before you can grieve for someone. Right. Oh, so interesting, though. It's so much a part of human nature to turn things inward, to think that there's something wrong with us, that we can't seem to produce an emotion like we're supposed to. And we can wonder if there is something damaged inside of us that uh, shifts our ability to have uh, sympathy and, you know, kind of the softer, nicer feelings. I, I'm very sorry that your grandfather passed away at the same time. It was a very important kind of emotional watershed moment for you and really reassuring, I think, to you about yourself. I love my grandfather and I really treasure, I treasure his memory in a way that I just don't treasure the memory of a bunch of people that I just never really felt emotionally connected to. But I was told that they should be at least as important as my granddad. And the other thing that happened with those deaths is at the same time that I was told that I should be so sad, I was also told with no indication of contradiction that actually those people were with Baba now. So they should be, so we should all be extremely happy and rejoice and not be sad because they were with Baba. And that leads me to one of the other things that I just felt was incredibly toxic, which was this kind of toxic positivity, which is that the, uh, the central concept of Baba is everything that happens is what Baba wants to have happen. Everything that happens is Baba's will. And Baba is good, so therefore everything that happens is good. This is just such a terrible thing to be told, especially when you're a kid, because it just denies, it denies that anything bad can exist. It denies your feelings. And years, many years later, I was visiting India. This is long after I'd broken with Baba, but I was visiting the ashram because my mom was there. So I was visiting my mom. So I was in India when 9-11 happened and some random pilgrim was there and uh, struck up a conversation with me. And I said some something about this, you know, this is so terrible. And she said, oh no, this was Baba's will. We should re we should rejoice in all things that are Baba's will. And I just snapped and I screamed at her. You think that 2000 people died and this is good? What the hell is wrong with you? Are you rooting for the terrorists? Do you do you think it's a good thing that they murdered people? How would you like to go out and murder some people for Baba? That would be good, too. Huh? And she was like, I, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> but it's like. That's what I was surrounded with. 
Right. You know, I wonder with the people who were convincing you to just always be happy and that everything is good. And, you know, do you feel like they all believed it themselves or for some, it was this mantra or they knew that's the way that they could keep kind of Baba in a spiritual realm, accepting them? I mean, the thing is, these are all adults. I was a kid. So I'm I'm pretty pissed off that they had all this perspective that I didn't have and were just shoving their insanity on me. But basically, I think they wanted to believe it because it's extremely comforting. If you truly believe that everything that happens is good and for the best, then that's a really comforting thing to believe. It kind of soothes all the sadness and tragedy of life. But again, because they were adults, I know that they felt negative feelings. And I'm sure they had moments where they really were unhappy with stuff because I would see them like get pissed off and sad and so forth. But then they could always tell themselves, well, this is Bob as well. It's actually good. There are a lot of phrases like that that are these thought terminating cliches, these phrases that help shift your emotional realm to whatever it's supposed to be. And you know, whatever the ideal is within a group. And even saying everything happens for a reason is an interesting phrase to me because yeah, everything happens for a reason. It might not be spiritual because you weren't paying attention and that's why you bumped into the wall. I mean, it could, everything has a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason might be uh, shit happens. So I remember when I was uh, eight years old, I was walking home. I was walking home from school. I was just feeling particularly miserable. I don't remember what had happened that day. I'm sure it was the same old round of teachers being abusive, kids bullying me, people throwing rocks at me, um, adults telling me that everything was awesome, really. And it was Baba's will. And I was so blessed. And I literally remember exactly where I was. Like I can see it. Um, you know, I was behind this, uh, the town's only movie theater and in near this gravel pit. And um, I remember thinking to myself, those adults, you know, maybe they believe this themselves. And when they tell me that I will look back and be happy about it, and that my childhood is really happy, you know, maybe they had bad things happen to them when they were kids. And then they just told themselves so hard, it was actually good that they now believe it. And I was like, well, I I don't want to be like that. I want to believe, I want to remember what really happened. And I just stopped where I was and I thought to myself, like in this really intense way, like I am going to remember this. I thought, I am eight years old right now. And I remember telling myself the year, although I don't remember what the year was now, the year that I was eight, I guess I was like eight years old and I am here in Abhinagar, India, and I hate my life. I'm miserable. This is horrible. And I am never going to forget this moment. And if I ever feel tempted to remember things wrong, remember things the way people told me rather than the way I feel, I'm going to remember this moment right now. And I'm going to remember what it, what I felt like right now. Oh, that's so powerful. So powerful. And you did. Okay. So to be so clear, I mean, then I just think about the five years or so that you were there, just how long they must have felt if even by age eight, when you're into it, you were so sure, so clear about how this was a miserable life. And so to have to endure that for more years to come, how did you do it? 
you do things because you have no other choice. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. It's like, how do people endure war or concentration camps? Well, they don't have a choice. So that was how I did it. I had no choice. And uh, I definitely tried to hang on to myself and my own beliefs, because that was really the only thing that I had to myself, because everything else was chosen for me. So they could tell me to you know, I had to recite the prayers and I had to bow down. But every time my head touched Baba's sacred pillow, literal thing, I had to bow down his chair, his bed, his everything. Um, I would think, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in any of this stuff. And one day I'm not going to ever have to do it again. And I didn't, there was a point where pretty early on, I think actually where I just stopped telling adults how I felt because it obviously did no good. And it was just kind of, it felt really shame, really kind of humiliating to tell people what was going on and how miserable I was and just have them respond with, oh, how sad, but actually things are great or you'll be happy one day. At some pretty early point, I just decided... I'm never telling my parents anything ever again. I'm never telling any of these people anything important ever again. You know, there's something that happens when you get older and you realize that you had more capacity than the adults around you to a certain degree to handle internal conflict and the ability to hold on to the negative, not be afraid of it but to use it as a way of seeing things clearly and having the whole spectrum of emotion register inside of you. The people, I think, who need to go to one extreme and just have everything be okay are saying a lot about what they have the ability or capacity to handle. I don't know your feelings about that. No, I agree. I actually really agree with that. And I think we we really kind of put down negative emotions but negative emotions are essential. They really are. And the capacity to open your eyes and see things that are wrong. If we don't see things that are wrong, we can never change them. You know, if you can't see, like you don't want to see that anything's wrong, then you will accept that in your midst, there is a child who is suffering and abused and you will do nothing. And I really did not want to be that person. I wanted to be the person who would help that child. And as an adult, uh, in my work as a therapist and um, done crisis intervention, you know, I can do things like, for example, sit in a room with someone who has woken up and found the, the body of their spouse who had died overnight. I can sit in the room with them and listen to their grief and talk to them and be with them. And I can do that because I understand what it is to feel grief you know, and also have the capacity to separate myself out because it's not my grief. So I can sit that there and um, be the person who listens and not distract them with my own emotions because my only emotions are compassion. I used to do crisis response on call with with the police. Um, they would summon, they would summon me in cases where someone had died suddenly. There was a group of us that did that. It's really great work. It's actually what made me decide I wanted to be a therapist myself. But, you know, you can't do work with grief if you believe that everything is awesome, really. You'd mentioned something to me when we met previously about the idea of things being real versus not real. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, my God. That was such a huge thing. And that actually was something that really got under my skin and bothered me. 
you know, again, I was a child, so I had a very strong will as a child, but I didn't have the capacity. I, I just didn't have context. I didn't have experience. So there was some stuff that I didn't believe because to me, it just seemed so obviously false. Like if throwing rocks at you and you're like thinking of suicide all the time and people say, no, actually you're happy. It's like, it's relatively easy to go. No, that's crazy. There's other stuff that people told me that was a little less obvious that did, I did kind of believe it on some level. And I found it hugely upsetting, which was another of Baba's big tenets is there's no such thing as reality. Everything we experience as reality is actually not real. It's an illusion. And the only real reality is Baba, because a lot of the people at the ashram were hippies and they were kind of intellectuals and they used to just sort of enjoy digging into this abstract stuff. I think that's why I heard a lot about that, because they're like, oh, everything's an illusion, man. And therefore, nothing matters. The only thing that matters is Baba. So not only is everything good, but also nothing is real and nothing matters. And that just really bothered me because I would think, what if that's true? What if nothing is real? What if nothing matters? And I wanted to believe that things did matter and what we did was important and reality existed. It was this sort of like, I guess, thanks for instilling an existential crisis in the head of a six-year-old, I guess. Right. Yeah. So the idea, though, that nothing is real, it's very disconnecting from the world and from the evidence of your senses. And so that does disconnect you from the self. And it sounds like what you needed to do was to hold on to the tangible piece of things of life and to reinforce for yourself that things were real, even if you were told they weren't. Yeah. And I think, again, I mentioned that I was really into nature and I think I'm, I've always been just sort of inborn was very interested in observation. So, you know, while people were in the evening, I'd be listening to everyone going on about how nothing was real. Like in the afternoon, I would be like spending hours like crouched down watching the life cycle of a particular type of bug that would start out as like a tiny scarlet mite, and then it would grow into a larger scarlet bug, and then it would pupate and metamorphose into an orange and black bug. Well, that's very real. It's hard to get any realer than insects. And so that was the sort of stuff that I would just, on some level, again, I would find that impossible to believe that that was unreal. Because also I would think, well, what could be better than that? You know, how is Baba, this dude who at this point, I'm like, number one, he's dead. And number two, I kind of hate him. How can he be the only real thing when this kind of amazing, like there's flowers and there's insects and there's lizards and all this stuff is so real and so wonderful. How can that be the fake thing and this asshole dead dude be the reality? But meanwhile, uh, again, because nothing, you know, nothing was real and everything was good, blah, blah, blah. It gave people the opportunity to do some really terrible things. Well, let me tell you the single most traumatizing thing that has happened to me in my entire life, which was there was a guy who lived there named Erico, who was an American dude. Um, and he was one of the, you know, one of the disciples and he was my dad's age. And I kind of like, I liked him because he talked, number one, he talked to me like I was in, like I was a person, not like, you know, he didn't talk down. Number two, he knew a lot of interesting stuff. He could tell cool stories. I'm sure you know where this is going. And actually it's kind of even worse than where you're thinking it's going. 
So I used to hang around him a lot. And meanwhile, there was this other person who lived there called Mohammed the Must. Okay, so must is a word which means basically like holy madman. It's the idea that sometimes people get so overwhelmed with God, they kind of lose touch with reality, except there is no reality. This is also contradictory. There was this dude who lived at the ashram who, like I would say, probably had really severe schizophrenia. He was kind of an old man and he spent all day walking around like bent over, picking up tiny little bits of stuff off the ground that he called dish, which is not a word and in any language, and he collected them. Um, and he was considered holy. Like the idea is he wasn't just an ordinary person with mental illness, Was a he was a saint. Now, the thing with him is, number one, I was scared of him because he, you know, to a child, it's like, this is kind of a scary figure. It's this man who walks around collecting stuff, muttering to himself in a scary way. And number two, he used to chase women sometimes. Though, like, even though I was young, I kind of had the idea that this was a sexual thing. I mean, he never caught them because he was an old bent man, but he freaked me out and I stayed way away from him. You know, people would make jokes like kind of like, oh, what would he do if he caught them? Clearly, the idea is he would rape them, um, although no one used that word. But he never could catch them. So it's just kind of a like cute, funny thing. Um, so one day I was hanging around Erico and bugging him, I guess. And he was like, get lost. I'm trying to do something. And I was kind of like, ha ha. I mean, I was nine, by the way. Um, and I was like, ha ha, I'm not going away, entertain me. And he was like, if you don't go away, I'm going to tie you up and leave you for Muhammad the must. And of course, I did not take this seriously at all. I thought that was like a kind of a ridiculous, like, you know, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to cook you in my oven sort of joke thread. Um, So I kept hanging around and he just turns on me. He grabs me and starts dragging me. Oh, he grabs me, drags me inside his house and gets a coil of rope. And at that point, I started freaking out. Like, I was like, holy shit, he's not kidding. And I started screaming at the top of my lungs. And I was like, let me go, let me go, I'll go away. And he's like, no. Grabs the coil of rope, drags me to where Mohammed is. And at that point, I was just like so terrified. But I also, part of me, I couldn't believe that he was really going to do it. Like, I thought this is just a, he's trying to scare me, which, yes, succeeding. But I also just couldn't believe he would really do it. It was such a shocking thing. Um, and also it's very shocking that this guy who I always thought was a nice guy was suddenly being incredibly violent, drags me up to Muhammad the must, throws me down, shoves me against uh, this like stone, this like wood pillar that was part of the structure of the place and um, starts tying me to it. And Muhammad the must, of course, is caught by this and starts looking over like what the hell is going on here. And uh, at that point, I just was like, if I keep screaming, I'm going to attract his attention. So maybe I better just shut up. So I like stopped screaming. And I was like, I was like, Erica, please don't do this. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. I'll stop. I'll go away. I'll never bother you again. He just ignored me. And also I was wearing a dress. My dress is completely shoved up. Like, I don't think he did this on purpose. I think it was like in the struggle, like, but my dress shoved up around my waist, my underwear's exposed. Now think about this. This is an adult man, like in his mid thirties, tying up a nine-year-old girl, like is a sexual sacrifice while she's screaming. And then he finishes tying me up and like, 
again with my skirt up and everything. And I was like, please don't, please don't untie me, untie me, untie me. And he's like, no, I'm leaving you for him. And he just walks away. And so I'm, so I'm there and Mohammed starts approaching me. And at that point, I have no memory of anything that happened between that point, which was like the most terrified I've ever been in my life. And then it's like my memory, just like, like there were frames cut out of a film, just stop. And then jump cut. It starts up again with Erico untying me. I have no idea what happened in the interim. Did Mohammed sexually assault me? I, I don't know. Who knows? But if he didn't, it kind of wouldn't be any if better than if he did, because the whole thing is so traumatic. It sort of at that point becomes irrelevant. And um, I just ran away and I ran into like as far as I could go into a field, like into some field. And I just hid there to like nightfall or something. And I just felt like I had been complete, just broken by that experience. That there was, I realized that anybody there could do anything to me and it didn't matter and nobody would ever do anything about it. And then uh, I tried to kill myself a few months later. Before getting to that, because I want to hear about that too. Yes, having someone turn on you in that way. And I understand what you mean about if Mohammed, you know, sexually assaulted you. Or not, it, it it was already, you know, hugely traumatizing to begin with. And such a betrayal, right? Here is this person who you kind of connected with, and it seems like it was kind of the only one who you like to hang out with, who talked to you in a nice and a respectful way. And to have that person then turn on you is devastating and shocking. I'm also noticing in the story that when it happened and you got untied, you didn't run to your parents. Oh, no. Nope, nope, nope. It never even occurred to me. My dad, I think, found me in the field at some point, I think just because I hadn't come home. And Erico had told him what had happened to explain the fact that I hadn't, that I just disappeared. And my dad said, was like pissed off at him and was like, well, I told him he, you know, I told him I'd kill him if he ever lays hands on you again. And I just thought, kind of in this very cold way, I thought, yeah. That's nice that you're saying that to me, but you're not going to do anything to him. And this makes no difference and you're not going to care. And in fact, my dad stayed friends with him and everybody knew what he'd done, but nobody really took it seriously because Muhammad the Musk was a holy person. So he couldn't have possibly done anything. So Erica would just like, like they took it as it was a prank that went too far. Now, if you think of nine-year-old children, you know, who the fuck ties up a nine-year-old kid in front of someone they're terrified of and walks away and leaves them there regardless of whether they think that person is safe or not. Who does that? It's like, not just, like if Erica would like hit me or something, I would have been upset, but it wouldn't have been traumatizing to that degree. It was that it was this calculated sadistic act of horrifying cruelty and nobody really cared. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. So then a few months later... You tried to commit suicide. I am not surprised to hear that. Yeah. So I, you know, again, I was like nine years old. You know, remember I was kind of a latchkey kid. So I was in the, I was in our room alone and I locked my, and um, I locked myself in. And like previously the other months, I'd just been thinking and thinking, is there anything I could do? Is there any way I can get out of here? And I just completely came up empty. I actually thought of faking a suicide attempt, but I just sort of didn't think it would matter. I didn't think anyone, I didn't think anything would happen. They'd just be like, oh, Rachel's so sad, you know, don't do that again. I didn't think it would change anything. 
So I thought, you know, I thought this is just, I, I can't stand this. I just want to die um, because it's better than staying here anymore. And I got on like a footstool to get at the knives, which were not placed out of my reach, by the way. They were just like, you know, that's where they were stored. So I got like a kitchen knife, which again, in these, you know, traumatic moments, you remember everything with such perfect clarity. You know, you remember like what the knife felt like. I guess fortunately for me, Again, I was nine, so I didn't have a lot of context or, you know, experiences because there's a lot of things I could have done that would have worked. But luckily, I didn't think of them. Like, I thought the only way you could hang yourself was you had to, like, tie a rope to a tree and get a noose and then jump off, which seemed so complicated. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't know that. So I thought, well, well, what would even work? And then I thought, well, I, I could cut my throat with a knife. Um, because I'd read that like cutting your wrists isn't actually a very good way to do it. And I meant to succeed. Uh, so I end up with this very sharp paring knife and I just stood against, and I held the knife to my throat and I just stood against the wall trying to get up the nerve to do it. And again, luckily that's a highly difficult way of committing suicide. I mean, you would need so much strength of will to do that. And so I just stood there trying to get myself to do it for like, I don't know long, I think at least half an hour. Then at some point I thought, well, you know, if I did this now, like right now, nothing horrible is happening to me. Like, I know that something horrible will happen the next day because if nothing else, I'll have to go to fucking school again. I was like, but right now, nothing terrible is happening. Right now, I just have the rest of the afternoon to myself and I could go read a book, which I would enjoy. And why would I waste this time? You know, maybe tomorrow I'll do it. But it seemed really, really like a, you know, why would I throw away this afternoon? And I put the, you know, when I put the knife away and put the stool away and I didn't tell anyone and I went and read a book. and. I think that thing, that idea of this moment is not terrible, is really what saved me. Wow, that's really incredible. This moment is not terrible. I'm suddenly thinking of Heaven's Gate. There were videos taken of the people who were about to die and go to the mothership. And they are sitting on these chairs in this yard of this house in San Diego. It's a beautiful day. You hear the birds chirping, there are flowers, grass in the background, and they're talking about how miserable and ugly life is on earth. And so they need to leave their corporal beings and go to the mothership. And I, as I was watching the video, I wanted, it's like, I wanted to yell, even though they had already passed away. And this was, you saw this after I wanted to say, turn around, turn around. Look at the flowers. Here are the birds. The sun is shining. You're around friends. You have people who do care about you. And you're talking about how miserable everything is, but it's not. And in that moment, right? Like if they could have had that thought, like right now, actually, if I take the moment to think things are actually okay, then maybe it would have stopped them. It's very interesting. Anyway, at age of 12, you said that you extracted yourself. How did you do it? I had a stroke of luck, which is that my father left. So my father basically just told me one day that he was moving back to America. And I basically said, please, 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 please take me with you. And he was like, no, sorry, can't do that. Um, and left. I was just devastated. But then once he landed, once he arrived in America, I realized, wait a sec, 
there is now someone in America who potentially could get me out of here. Because before that, I felt like there just wasn't anyone. So I started writing him letters. Basically, it would be like, hey, dad, you know, anecdote about my day. Please take me to America. I, you'll be really, you know, if you do, you'll be really happy. I'll do the dishes. I'll work. I'll, you know, I will never make trouble. You know, please take me back to America. And I wrote him a letter every day for six months. And I'm like, get me out, get me out of here. I want to come live with you. I will do all these things. And my dad likes to, like now he likes to say that, like, I made all these promises that I didn't keep, which I'm like, duh, of course, no fucking 12 year old is going to like never make any trouble for you. What do you think? Um, but uh, anyway, so I made all these promises, uh, you know, like I'll wash the clothes or whatever, uh, which of course I didn't do. But basically after six months, and it wasn't like I'd said, I'm going to write him a letter every day for six months and then I'll give up. I was just like, I'm going to write him a letter every day until he gets, until he takes me. And I just now imagine this from my dad's point of view, because the mail was often held up. So like you would get, like, if you wrote someone twice in a month, they might get like two letters at the same time. I imagine getting no letters for a week and thinking, oh, thank God she's given up. And then he opens his mailbox and 15 letters fall out. So finally he wrote back and he was like, okay, fine. You can come live with me. So I was like, packed up. I felt kind of mildly bad for my mom that I wasn't even pretending to be sad to leave her. But I, I was just like, I wasn't, I just wanted to escape. So I arrive in the airport, like middle of the night and my dad is there. And also this woman from the ashram who'd left like six months before he'd left, Kebby is there with him. And I knew that they were like doing some business stuff together, but I was like, why would she come pick me up at the airport in the middle of the night? And then the penny dropped and I'm like, oh my God, that's why my father left. He's run off with this other woman. They just did it six months apart so no one would know. And then I thought, oh no, but everybody must have figured this out. I'm just this stupid little kid who didn't know. Now, I found out later that actually they really had fooled everyone. Nobody knew, including me. Uh, But at the time, I just felt like, well, I must be an idiot and people must have been laughing at me behind my back because I didn't know. So we get in the car together. We start driving. Halfway to the place, we stop at a McDonald's and Kebby goes to get sodas. And my dad says, and there's a silence. And my dad says, "Uh, so Kebby and I are living together and we're kind of boyfriend and girlfriend now. And I said, I figured that out. And we just sat there in silence until we came back with the Coke. So that was the only time we ever discussed it until I was 35 and I published a book about it. And then we had a discussion. It's incredible. I see you at your young age. Sometimes I think it felt like you were the only adult in the room, right? Like you were the only adult in the car at that time. Yeah, it did feel like that because I was just like, you should have told me. And I just felt like this idiot. Uh, right. So... So then life in America, needing to get readjusted, how do you connect with people? You just have been through some experience that you don't know how to describe or even if you want to. It was such a disaster. I mean, like I basically thought, well, I'm miserable because I'm living in this horrible situation and America just seemed like the promised land. I was like, I will go there and everything will be perfect. No one will bully me because, hey, I'm an American too. Boy, is that not how it works. Um, So I show up and I've missed like all of pop culture and like 
everything for the last seven years. I had never heard of anything. Um, I had no school records, which that part ended up not really being a problem. But, um, you know, I was just this weirdo. And of course, I then get bullied in America. And also the other problem is, you know, I I had what eventually I realized was PTSD. But of course, nobody... I mean, even at that time, like this was like the 80s. I don't think people really registered childhood PTSD at the time that much. Um, So it wasn't really that known. And of course, none of my family thought I'd had a traumatic experience. So I'm just kind of blundering around feeling extremely depressed. And like I had like really bad hypervigilance. Like I didn't think of it as a trauma response because I had never heard of that. I just thought of it as this experience in India has just like destroyed me and I'm just going to be this like ruined person until I kill myself. And of course, nobody ever thought of taking me in for therapy, even though there were moments when like, it was so obvious that something was seriously wrong. Like at one point we went to visit this town, Ojai, and I like, and at this point I'm like 12, 12 or 13. And I like burst into tears and started screaming hysterically that the hills looked like Ahmed, the hills in Ahmed Nagar. And I like literally flipped out until we left. Okay. Well, that's not really not normal. But they were just like, Oh, Rachel, she's so dramatic or something like that. I, I like it. talked about it. The turning point for me was when I was in my twenties and, um, I went to this, uh, this bookstore and the bookstore had like a front and then it had a second room in the back and you had to like step over a threshold into the second room to get in. And I was there with like browsing and me and this other, uh, customer sort of went, both went toward the door at the same time. And the other customer was, uh, this old guy in fit in like camouflage, And um, I think he was literally wearing dog tags. Like, so obvious, like he was a Vietnam vet, but you could like see that at a glance. And he had a bottle shoved down the front of his pants. Um, And he and I both, both went to the doorway at the same time, which was wide enough that we both could have just gone in. And we both stopped and like did sort of a quick visual survey of the entire place to make sure no one was going to attack us when we went in. And we both did that at the same time and then kind of registered that the other person was doing it and kind of looked at each other. And I was just super embarrassed because I was like, oh shit, this guy thinks I'm a freak. And I would have just ignored the whole thing and run. But he turns to me and he says, okay, I know why I did that. What war were you in? And that sounds a little sarcastic, but it really wasn't. And I was kind of like, uh, I wasn't in a war. And he was like, what were you doing just then? Weren't you like checking for enemies? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, why? So I told him. And I think that was the first person I'd ever told any of this. And we ended up just kind of talking and for like hours in the bookstore. And I, you know, when I ended up giving him a ride home and, uh, it was weird. It was just one of those weird chance encounters that really changes things because he was the first person who had ever taken me seriously, you know, and, and because I was like, well, I mean, I just, nothing happened to me. Like what happened to you? And he was like, well, that kind of wasn't, that clearly wasn't how he saw it. And I think we just had this odd little encounter where he was the first one who had ever taken me seriously. And I was the first, like, I guess, civilian who wasn't scared of him, you know, because like, 
you know, there was like all that stuff in the media about like Vietnam vets, they're going to go insane and shoot up the place. And he certainly looked like the movie image of someone who would go insane and shoot up the place. But, you know, he was just a guy who'd had a lot of trauma and obviously was an alcoholic. Uh, And so at that point, I was like, maybe I should look up this PTSD thing. It's like, I literally didn't even consciously do it. And I don't think he consciously did it. And neither of us would have registered that we'd done it if there hadn't been someone standing next to us doing the exact same thing, which which most people wouldn't do. Incredible. Okay. So now moving into, first of all, also going into school and then into college and being around books and not being chased out of a library. God, so wonderful. So wonderful. Yeah, I'm sure. Because that was your haven. Yes. And then studying and then going into counseling and then also how your experiences have shifted the way you do counseling and the choices you make. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think for the sake of time, let's skip over college. I didn't actually go directly into counseling. I didn't major in psychology. I became a writer and I did that for years and years and years before I ever, before I became a therapist. I was, I was one of the oldest in my class as a, as a prospective therapist getting an MA in clinical psychology. So I was in my forties. It was because of the work I did with the cops when they would call me or one of a group of people who were doing this, like sometimes in the middle of the night to come sit with people who had found a body and typically a body of a loved one. Um, And I loved doing that. It was very, very powerful work. I really miss it. I actually, I can't do it now because I, it was based out of LA and I don't live in LA anymore. And there isn't a program where I live and you have to get there within 20 minutes. So unfortunately, but it was great work. But after a while, I started thinking, I wish I could follow up with these people because you don't, you know, you refer them to actual counselors. Um, But I really wanted to keep going with them and follow up. And, you know, I finally realized that you have to be a therapist to do that. So I went to school as a therapist and um, I think it was actually good. I'm glad I didn't become a therapist when I was young. I just feel like age and experience and self-knowledge is just so helpful. And um, I felt like I was able to begin with way more confidence than if I'd started when I was like 25. I've always been drawn to working with people with trauma Uh, which honestly, most people have trauma to some degree or another, rare for people not to, but people whose trauma is their big thing. And also people who don't fit in for whatever reason, like people who are some kind of social minority, like an immigrant or a refugee or LGBTIQ, people who are neurodivergent. All those people are kind of drawn to me and have good experiences working with me. And I think it's because I had the experience of being so different and really feeling alone and one of a kind. And also the experience of cultural dislocation where first, where I moved to a foreign country twice, actually, once to India and then once to America. The thing about trauma is at the point when I became a therapist, I had really worked through like I mean, I think you never really finished your work, but, you know, to a very large extent, I had worked through my trauma and I had such a backlog of knowledge of what it feels like to be in the midst of PTSD, what it feels like to be recovering, what it feels like to be still recovering five years later, what it feels like for this all to be 20 years behind you. So people would come to me and they'd say, well, 
you know, I hear you never really get over it. I hear it's, will I ever feel any better? And I would look at, and I would look them in the eyes and I would say, and, um, oh, at the time, at the time I was started working, I was at an agency where we were really discouraged from any kind of personal disclosure. So I actually never told anyone unless they asked directly, which mostly they didn't ask. So I wouldn't tell them why, unless they asked, but they would say, is it possible to ever get better? And I would look at them and I would say, yes, I know that it's possible. Yes. I know that you can have a good life after this sort of thing happens to you. And they would feel my truth. You know, they would feel that I knew it, like I knew it, it was a real thing. And, you know, the thing with being a therapist is you have so much power over people. You have to be very, very careful not to misuse it because you tell people something, they will believe it. But there's also an advantage to that, which is that you can tell people things that you know are true, but that they can't believe yet. But you can, if you believe them and they are actually true, you can tell them that. And part of your power as a therapist will make them kind of float a little on your belief. Like they may not be able to really believe it themselves, but they know that I believe it. And that's the good use of power as a therapist. I can present that idea of things will get better. You may not believe it yet, but I believe it. And I'm not just some bullshitter. I'm this person that you trust. Right. Oh, that's so beautifully said. Also, as a therapist, even as a, a good friend or a family member who loves you, that you might see something in another person that's positive that they don't see in themselves. And you want to reflect that back, like what you feel they're capable of or what kind of person they really are, even though they've been told they're not. I think you're right to kind of gift them with the truth as you see it and you've experienced it and your reflection, which is going to be more objective. You know, because again, because I have the benefit of having experienced all this stuff myself, one thing that I think is pretty common uh, is people who have had unusual traumatic things happen to them will come in feeling like, oh God, I'm going to, this is just so complicated and weird. Is anyone going to believe me? Am I going to have to explain so much before I can even start working? This is just like, they feel weighed down just by the oddness of it. And that, am I going to shock my therapist? Um, And, you know, some therapists are not very good and they are shockable. So there's that. They may have actually had that happen before. So one thing, another thing that I think I can do is I can just tell people outright, whatever you tell me, I can promise you, I am not going to judge you and I am not going to be shocked. I have seen a lot and I have heard a lot and I've experienced a lot. And whatever you tell me, I'm. it's not going to seem that weird to me and it's not going to seem that freaky to me. You can tell me, you can tell me stuff or not. You don't have to tell me anything. That's the other way where I differ a little from uh, a lot of trauma therapists. I think a lot of trauma therapists are kind of feel that you, the client has to tell everything, you know, anything that's not said becomes this sort of, in, you know, infection that will grow um, and that people will avoid telling. I feel that people actually, it's okay to let people avoid because then it gives them safety. I don't ever want to feel, make make my clients feel that they have to tell me anything Ever. They will, because the thing is, I know they will tell me if it's bothering them, they'll tell me eventually. I would, would much rather have them feel safe and feel like, you know, if they want to talk to me about their favorite movie for an hour, yeah, go ahead. And then it relieves a lot of the fear that is such a big thing where people feel like I can't bear to speak of this thing. 
if I go into therapy knowing that I have to speak of this thing, they're just going to spend the entire hour sobbing and say nothing, which I did with bad therapists multiple times. Or maybe not bad therapists, maybe therapists who just didn't know how to handle what I was going through. And I don't want people to do that. That's useless. I want them to feel that they can come into therapy and I'm never going to make them do anything. It's so respectful. It also makes it not about you. And that is a really beautiful thing when you haven't had that experience growing up, right? You know, there are a couple of words that have always bothered me um, that therapists use. Uh, one of them is withholding and the other is resistance. Yes. Oh my God. I hate those words. Right. I hate them too. I hate them too. Cause it's so much about the therapist need and it's accusatory. And so if someone is resisting, maybe what they're saying is I'm going to hold a boundary until I feel safe or until I know you and I see how you respond to other things like that. That's a really good thing. And to not call it resistance, because again, that has this negative connotation and withholding, right? They don't owe you this information. It's not like you can accuse them of withholding, like withholding money that they owe you. They don't owe you anything. You know, when I will tell people that outright, you don't have to tell, you don't have to tell me anything you don't want to. If I ask you a question that you don't want to answer, you can just say, I'd rather not talk about that, or I'd rather not talk about that right now. And I will respect that. Wonderful. And I really like that you add that piece about how I've heard so much and I've experienced so much. So don't worry about shocking me, overwhelming me. And also I think in that, don't worry about not being believed. Yes, because I do believe, I I do believe people. um, I mean, of course, obviously, you will encounter times when you meet someone who is, for instance, clinically paranoid, which has happened to me. But my feeling is you can tell the difference, really, you can tell the difference between someone who is telling you stuff that just sounds odd and someone who is actually having a delusion. It's not a difficult thing to do at all. Because the person who is clinically paranoid will start with something that sounds plausible and like within 20 minutes, they will get to, and there's KGB agents hiding under my bed. You know, so there is, so there is that, but I feel that even with someone who is clinically paranoid, you can be respectful, you know, you know, so that aside, of course, I'm going to freaking believe people. I'm currently working as a life coach. Before that, I was in private practice. Before that, I was in an agency where sometimes people kind of had to lie to me because they were court mandated. So they weren't there of their own accord, which I think is immoral and unethical, by the way. I don't think anyone should ever be mandated into therapy. But, you know, short of that, I don't expect people to come in and lie to me because why would they? You know, they may not tell me everything. They may tell me some things because they think it's simpler or they're afraid to tell me the actual truth, but I don't even consider that lies. I just consider that they'll tell me, they'll tell me the important things when they feel safe. Right. So then I guess as we're, we're finishing up, I'm going to get to the heal or heal thyself part of it. How did you heal? I mean, you've went through so much. What was helpful to you? Well, the big thing that was really helpful was I went to Cedar sinai um, because I thought Cedar sinai they're very respectable. And I actually kind of lucked out and I got two very good people, a psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist. Um, And I went on Prozac um, and I've been on antidepressants kind of off, off and on, you know, I was off them for like a number of, a number of years. And then I did end up going back on them. So I currently take Lexapro. I feel like they're, you know, if you need them, they're great. So Prozac was incredibly helpful for me, especially early on. And the therapist 
I just by random chance, I got uh, this woman, uh, Dr. Homa Mahmoudi, who was fantastic. She was a CBT therapist. She was also from Iran and she was a religious minority within Iran. So I actually didn't have to explain that much to her that I like, if, like, I was just like, oh my God, this is so much. How do I even explain? Because she kind of very straightforwardly, very early on was like, okay, you don't need to explain all this stuff to me. I get it. Here's why. Let me tell you. And she told me, and I was like, oh, thank God. Okay, well, let's get on to actually doing some work. So I did some really intensive CBT with her that was actually primarily not trauma focused. It was more about social anxiety, but um, it gave me a lot of tools to kind of deal with living with the issues that I had right now. And I knew that she knew about the trauma. So she knew where everything came from. So that was what made it helpful. Like I always knew that she got where my anxiety came from. And then uh, I ended up being like doing pretty well, uh, except that I still had a lot of hypervigilance um, and like stuff like nightmares and flashbacks and, you know, really exaggerated startle reflex. And uh, at that point, I wasn't living, I think I wasn't living near Cedars or I would have gone back. You know, I feel like I dealt with a lot of the mental stuff, but obviously physically, I'm still having problems. And I thought, well, maybe maybe I need to kind of physically reprogram my body the way I physically, the way I reprogram my mind. And I thought, I wonder if I were to do some kind of really intensive physical exercise that's unfamiliar to me, while I'm kind of consciously keeping in mind that I'm trying to reprogram my body, like do a hard wipe and start from the ground up, if that would work. So I picked martial arts uh, because I'd never done it before. And I uh, ended up getting really into karate. It was like sort of the main thing in my life for like six years. And also it worked. You know, it was like I basically uh, kind of consciously thought, okay, I'm reprogramming my body. I'm taking away all the old reflexes and I'm building it back up again with new reflexes. And it really worked. So I do, uh, I will occasionally with clients, um, you know, obviously there's many more tools that are a lot less intensive than that. Most people don't have the leisure time to spend six hours a week doing, uh, doing martial arts. Um, but it is something that I will occasionally suggest to people if they, if I ask if they're interested, you know, that sometimes that can be helpful, like some new physical practice with a mental component. And then also I wrote a book about my childhood which was extremely cathartic. And also it did something very specific in terms of that one very traumatic incident with Mohammed the Must, which is I wrote a chapter on it and it was so painful to write that I literally was watching the keyboard rather than the screen when I was writing it. But then of course I had to revise the book. And when I revised the book, I had to revise that chapter. So I had to go over that chapter and revise it. And then I had to revise it again. And then I had to revise it again. And then I submitted the book to agents and then I had to revise it again. And then it got published and I had to revise it again. So I ended up doing this sort of accidental exposure therapy on myself where I went over that traumatic event in essentially a safe setting um, until it literally bored me. And it's really never felt the same since. And then I've been in sort of more regular talk therapy for also years and years. It was a lot of different things over a long period of time. And I feel like, honestly, that's the way to do it. Right. That's oh, really, really wonderfully said. And so just as we're finishing up, where can people find your book or anything else, you know, to find you or any other writings you've done, et cetera? If you're interested in uh, doing what I do do now, which is life coaching, I'm at rachelmbrown.com as a life coach. 
Um, my book, All the Fishes Come Home to Roost, is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. I also write um, romance novels uh, with a lot of action and adventure and PTSD under the name of Leah Silver, L-I-A-S-I-L-V-E-R, and those are on Amazon. And uh, I write under other pen names too. I'm on Goodreads. I think those list all my pen names. Goodreads is Rachel Manija Brown. All right. Oh, thank you. It's been so powerful, so good to talk to you. I know you had to kind of narrow down <laughs> your, your story in a bunch of years to be able to present it in this compact form. But I, I thank you, though, for giving us a flavor for your experience. I mean, that was really quite amazing. So really, it's wonderful. And I'm so glad you had a chance to write about it and do that kind of desensitization therapy inadvertently. Yeah. Yeah. And I really hope, I mean, the reason I came on this podcast is I really hope that my experience is helpful for someone else. You know, I, I, I think if I got anything good out of, out of an experience that mostly was extremely not good, it's being able to hold a hand back and say, Hey, I survived some really terrible things and I'm actually quite a happy person and I have a good life. And, you know, and I have a house completely full of books, literally wall to wall bookcases and cats and chickens and a garden with trees and a forest and insects. And that's what I wanted when I was nine and I got it and I'm happy in it. And whatever you know, whatever your dream is, uh, no matter what trauma you've been through, it is possible. And it's not just possible for me because I'm special because I'm not special or I'm only special in the way that everyone is special. You know, if you're listening to this and thinking, well, that's all very good for you. Uh, no, it's actually, I believe that it is true for you. That's such a beautiful way to end it. So hopeful and reassuring. Very nice to talk to you. I hope to talk to you again soon. One more thing before you go. Thank you, Rachel, for such an interesting story. I uh, It really deserves many more words than just interesting, but it is so interesting. It is so incredible when you hear about people who have been plucked out of their lives and taken to something so different, and they've just had to adjust. And it has at times felt impossible because sometimes it is impossible. And also that people are still devoted to a leader who they haven't met. And so, so much happens when there is a leader who you've never met because then their teachings can be kind of taught in the way that they were meant or sometimes reinvented. They're not there to disagree with how they may have been reinterpreted. So you never quite know if you're actually getting what they meant for you to get or believing what they meant for you to believe at times. But even still, it is quite incredible to think about the influence that someone has over a whole group of people that they still continue to do so after they have passed away way. So what I wanted to be able to talk more about is this idea of toxic positivity. So poor Rachel, as a little kid, was told that she was fine, that she wasn't supposed to be unhappy, that she was happy. She was told she was happy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's not how happiness works. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about something that we now call toxic positivity and why it's called toxic. So some of the positive phrases that people will hear will be things like, oh, 
you'll get over it or always find the silver lining. There's always a silver lining. Um, you can always make lemonade from lemons. If you succeed, it's because you want to. So you will succeed if you want to. Failure is never an option. I'm just running through the ones I remember hearing in my head. Everything happens for a reason. We're told that a lot. Sometimes people will say only happy thoughts are allowed here. Mm, look on the bright side. Oh, come on now, cheer up. It could always be worse. Other people have it much worse. Sometimes people have this notion, God will always protect you, whether or not that's the case or whether or not you believe. Where there's a will, there's a way. It'll happen if it's meant to happen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm sure there are many that come to mind as I'm going through the list that's in my mind. So positivity is actually great. It can be really motivational. It can help with perspective like other people have it worse. It can sometimes be calming. But if it's constant, if there's no room for you to be upset, and rightfully so, then what happens there is that you have very excessive and ineffective overgeneralizations just shot at you as you're going through a hard time. And being happy, optimistic, again, nothing wrong with it. But if your unhappiness is met with someone who's just trying to tell you you need to be happy, you're not going to necessarily feel cared for. In fact, you're going to feel like the person is sort of denying your experience or minimizing it or invalidating it. It can actually feel very lonely in that moment and isolating and a bit shaming because now you feel like you're a complainer. And so there are people who will say that they will know at times that they need a shot in the arm and they will pick the person to talk to who will help get them feeling pumped up. But at other times, they really want a shoulder to lean on or cry on. And you don't want to then talk to someone who is dismissive. You don't want to talk to someone who gives you false reassurances. Within that, they can think that they're helping you, but it doesn't feel like there's any empathy there. You can also not on purpose, gaslight people into questioning their own reality and their own experiences. Like maybe they weren't so bad. So remember that if someone comes to you with something difficult, there are some people who just really don't know how to handle those situations. They will avoid them. And you can tell because they don't want to talk about it. Or there are people who will talk to me about being in 12-step programs, et cetera, where there are sort of automatic phrases that are given to you about every situation. And you can feel like the person is just reiterating what they were told, almost like it's been scripted, but you might still feel alone. I think it's important to really know if you're someone who doesn't know how to deal with someone's feelings then you want to make sure at the very least you don't minimize someone else's. That you can let them know that you might not be equipped to handle it, but that you'll listen and you'll be there with them and for them. But you also, as the person sharing, you want to understand that at times toxic positivity is really for two other reasons. One is that there are many people, kind of narcissistic partners, cultic groups where anger, sadness, any negative thought 
criticism is just not allowed. And so if someone's telling you about their experience in a cult or in that kind of relationship, you don't want to actually mimic what their experience has been like before. You don't want to make them feel like they're not allowed to have those kinds of feelings. In fact, being angry, being sad, that alerts us to the fact that something bad has happened or that we're really having natural reactions to something very difficult. But what's also true with toxic positivity, and I think this makes it beyond toxic but dangerous, is that at times when you are with a controller or when you're involved in a cult and they tell you to always be positive or to feel appreciative about what's going on, they often will change the language that abuse isn't abuse, but it's for your benefit, etc. That's a way to make sure that the perpetrator, whoever the perpetrator is, the person who made you upset, the person who lied to you, the person who harmed you in some way, the person who put you in a dangerous situation, make sure they do not have to take responsibility. Because if you are falling apart in front of them, they can just make fun of you. They can tell you there's something wrong with you. They can tell you you're handling this in a dramatic way. They can also tell you that if you are having a hard time, that means there's something wrong with you. That puts all the focus on the victim. And then the perpetrator walks off whistling because they know they got away with it because you weren't allowed to have your feelings. And your feelings are like a mirror that you're holding up to the perpetrator, whether they want to look at them or not. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website, at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.